Welcome to Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup. Here's a look at some of our Caribbean headlines for today. Liat Cashless in St. Martin. U.S. Virgin Islands Governor Bryan declares territory stronger than ever in final address ahead of re-election. 18-year-old poised to join Barbados Senate. Jamaica elections postponed again. United States Southern Command General makes historic visit to Jamaica. President Joe Biden's Puerto Rico allies alarmed over judicial pick. And Spanish Explorer's statue toppled in Puerto Rico before Spanish kings visit. These and other stories on today's Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup for Tuesday, January 25th. We start a report today in St. Martin. The Observer reports that Liat will implement cashless transactions at its counters at Princess Juliana International Airport, St. Martin, effective January 27, 2022. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and as the airline rebuilds its network. Liat has been reviewing its operations within the aim of investing in processes for customer safety and security throughout the customer journey. The cashless transactions will assist customers by reducing wait times, allowing them to easily pay for services, as well as to reduce the potential social contact and spread of the coronavirus. Passengers will now pay for airline services such as baggage and change fees using either a debit or credit card. Passengers can also now call the reservation call center to pre-book and pay for their baggage before coming to the airport. Passengers will receive their receipts electronically, thereby reducing the use of paper as Leah continues to work to be an eco-friendly airline. The company will be implementing a cashless system across its network in the coming months. The airline currently flies to 10 destinations across the Caribbean. The Virgin Islands Consortium reports that Governor Albert Bryan opened his final State of the Territory address ahead of the upcoming gubernatorial election on a high note on Monday evening. Governor Bryan made two major announcements, highlighted his accomplishments, and touched on ongoing challenges he vowed to address. Setting the stage, the governor spoke of the economic rebound of the U.S. Virgin Islands was experiencing following the 2017 storms spurred by post-hurricane construction activity, a booming housing market, and growth in the tourism sector, and the sudden calamity of the COVID-19 pandemic, which changed the trajectory of the Virgin Islands and the world. Mr. Bryan conveyed an administration that not only successfully managed a pandemic that was rapidly changing, but also delivered on his core agenda. While taking advantage of opportunities brought about by the pandemic, including well over a billion dollars in COVID relief funds. To that end, the governor declared that the state of the U.S. Virgin Islands territory is stronger than ever and only getting stronger. By October 2021, the economy had regained almost 95% of jobs lost during the peak of the pandemic, and the unemployment rate fell to 8%, a full 5.6% from the initial height. Visitor volume recovery was nearly 80% from its 2020 low, 
On government finances, he said over the last three years, his administration has seen the annual revenue collections exceed the revenue projections, creating budget surpluses that have not been seen in over 15 years despite the pandemic. Furthermore, we have actually reduced the indebtedness of the government by over 500 million in the last three years. Relative to COVID-19, the governor continued encouraging vaccination and revealed that 62% of eligible Virgin Islands population have been fully vaccinated against the virus. Two big announcements of the night were focused on repaying government employees past and present and bringing relief to the Virgin Islanders struggling with the VI Water and Power Authority bills. The governor announced that his administration had put together a plan that will pay government's outstanding debt in retroactive wages to former and present employees dating back to 1990. He also announced a plan whose aim is to provide small residential water and power authority customers with energy independence through the installation of solar panels at their homes. The program targets 1,000 customers per year, and these customers will still be connected to the system for standby power. The announcement hit at the core of two major issues in the territory that may bolster Mr. Bryant's re-election campaign if he's able to execute them. Also addressed was funding to stave off the collapse of the U.S. Virgin Islands government employees' retirement system with a solution that was made public late last month. St. Lucia Times reports via CMC that Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados on Monday announced a smaller cabinet than what was in place in the last two governments, offering also two seats in the Senate to the opposition parties as she begins a new five-year term in government following her Barbados Labor Party's strong win in the general election on January 19th. Motley named for the first time a deputy prime minister, Sunita Bradshaw, as well as three senior ministers. We face simply too many critical issues for us to continue with business as usual, Motley said in an address to the nation, thanking the electorate for giving the Barbados Labor Party an unprecedented mandate of a second term with all of the seats in the lower house. We are most honored. We are humbled. Most of all, we are committed to delivering for all of the people of our country, she said, noting that the new development agenda titled Our Barbados, Owning Our Future, is a transformative one intended to build human and social capital and a sustainable economy in which the skills of all Barbadians will be required. The government that I led is determined that Barbados will be viewed as one of the world's top countries, a place of energy, enlightenment, and opportunity. It is our intention that Barbadians should continue to hold and draw on their finest of our values and traditions as a people. Motley, who called the general election 
18 months ahead of the constitutional deadline, saying she needed to bring about unity in the country, said that the campaign has ended and it's now time for Barbadians to unite and move beyond partisan division. Despite the challenges which lay ahead, my friends, this is a moment for optimism and, yes, a time for opportunity. We must also use it to educate, upscale, and train a new generation of confident Barbadians for nation-building, for regional engagement, and for global leadership. In related news, Antigua Newsroom reports that Prime Minister Mia Motley on Monday evening signaled the intention to appoint 18-year-old former Queens College student Khalil Kodilwala as a senator in the new Barbados cabinet on the premise that if you are old enough to vote, you must be old enough to serve. However, by virtue of his age, the 2021 Barbados scholar is currently unable to do so, prompting the need for a constitutional amendment. In her address to the nation, Motley said her government had an ambitious transformative agenda. This is one of several proposed changes to the upper house. The Jamaican Observer reports that 14 months after they were postponed in November 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic, fallout in the economy and widespread damage caused by heavy rains, the local Jamaican government elections were postponed again. When the House of Representatives meet today on Tuesday, on the agenda under public business is a bill entitled The Representation of People, Postponement of Election to Municipal Corporations and City Municipalities Act 2022. The bill will be tabled and debated. The last local polls were held on November 28, 2016, and saw the governing Jamaica Labor Party registering a landslide win over the opposition People's National Party to take charge of the majority of the municipal corporations. While the People's National Party has commenced campaigning in the latter half of 2021, as it anticipated that Prime Minister Andrew Holness would announce the elections for February, Holness has been signaling over the last months that they would be postponed again. With the emergence of the highly transmissible Omicron variant last November, Holness told the Jamaica Labor Party annual conference, for those who are anxiously awaiting it, local government elections, I don't believe it would be the right thing to do with a new variant strain on the horizon and all the pressures of COVID. This is a miserable time. It is not a time for politics and election. The Omicron variant is currently driving a relentless fort wave of the coronavirus that has seen record daily infections with increasing hospitalizations, though the debt rate is lower than what was seen during the third wave that was driven by the Delta variant. Holness also took a jab at the People's National Party, telling the conference that opposition would be defeated in the next municipal polls anyway.
U.S. Army General Laura Richardson, who made history as the first woman to lead the United States Southern Command, visited Jamaica on January 20th to 22nd for three days of high-level meetings. The meetings were focused on the United States' long-standing bilateral defense ties with Jamaica. General Richardson attended the Jamaica Defense Force Change of Command ceremony Friday night, where Rear Admiral Antoinette we Miss Gorman became the first woman to assume duties as Jamaica's first Chief of Defense Staff. On Saturday, Rear Admiral We Miss Gorman and General Richardson met at the Jamaica Defense Force headquarters to discuss the ever-growing partnership between their organizations, shared security, corporation interests, and threats and challenges of mutual concern. On the historic visit, Richardson was also joined by U.S. Air Force Major General Sherry McCandless, who also made history in 2021 as the first woman to assume commanding general duties of the Washington, D.C. National Guard. The U.S. Capitol City's National Guard has a state partnership with Jamaica established more than two decades ago. NBC News reports that President Joe Biden's top allies in Puerto Rico are alarmed that the White House snubbed Puerto Rico's Governor Pedro Perlusi's recommendations for three federal court vacancies. The controversy riddling political consequences for Puerto Rican heavy states like Florida and New York began to surface last week amid rumblings on the island that a bipartisan consensus picked promoted by Governor Pedro Perlusi might never be interviewed or considered for federal judgeships in the territory. At the same time, word leaked that the White House is vetting another candidate who's not in support by any of Puerto Rico's political leaders and whose opponent says he has expressed pro-independent sympathies in the past. And that's a no-go for Pelosi, who is pro-statehood. The White House has gone deaf, said Carmelo Rio Santiago, a Puerto Rico senator and top ally of Perlusi, who was a Biden campaign co-chair in Puerto Rico in 2020. Rios, the secretary of the island's pro-statehood party, added that the governor and others were already irked with Biden for failing to champion Puerto Rican statehood as president, despite his past support. White House spokesman Andrew Bates cautioned that the process is early and said no decision has been made on any of the three open spots on the U.S. District Court for the District of Puerto Rico. The report states that the controversy points to a deeper and longstanding issue concerning Biden and Democrats' outreach to Latino voters. Trinidad and Tobago Newsday reports that Guyana's president, Dr. Mohamed Irfan Ali, believes the way the world responds to unexpected challenges like the COVID-19 pandemic has a connection to how it handles known challenges such as climate change. Dr. Ali made his observations in his address at the opening of the Virtual Caribbean Sustainable Energy Chamber 2020 on Monday. Ali told participants the intertwined issues of climate change were not academic ones. These issues, he continued, are scientific, practical, and affect people's livelihood, and strategies to deal with them must be implementable. 
reminding participants of the promise made by nations attending the COP26 summit in Glasgow, Scotland last November to achieve net zero carbon emissions worldwide by 2050, Ali said, we should not be asking ourselves whether we could achieve net zero by 2050, but whether we can afford not to. The global scientific community, he continued, has indicated life on Earth will become perilous should the rise in global temperatures not be checked. This makes the achievement of net zero carbon emissions by 2050 imperative for global survival. As all global leaders agree, this big question is, how can this be achieved? Ali said questions of available capital, technology, and investments to develop new sustainable energy sources must be answered long before 2050. Beyond pledges being made to tackle climate change, the other question is whether those commitments are being kept. These are questions that must be answered if we are to honestly determine our ability to achieve net zero by 2050. This target cannot be separated from food security, provision of good social services, economic growth, and national prosperity to achieve net zero carbon emissions. Ali said the readiness of the world to deal with the pandemic has important lessons about its readiness to deal with climate change. The pandemic continues to be a test of global resolve in the face of debts and economic destruction. While countries must invest to protect their populations against COVID-19 and climate change, Ali said these must also survive and meet their immediate needs. Despite the grim realities of high debt rates and the need for interdependence among nations to bring COVID-19 under control, Ali said the pandemic gave birth to vaccine diplomacy, disparity and inequality. On both COVID-19 and climate change, the world must answer some hard questions. Notwithstanding its recent discoveries of oil and gas, Ali said Guyana has committed to reducing its carbon emissions by 70 percent by 2030. He also disclosed Guyana, Brazil and Suriname recently signed a Memorandum of Understanding for all three nations to explore opportunities in the development of sustainable energy initiatives between them. The Associated Press reports that a statue of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon was toppled by unknown people in the pre-dawn hours of Monday. This comes ahead of a visit of King Philippe VI to the U.S. Caribbean territory of Puerto Rico. Colonel Jose Juan Garcia, police commissioner for San Juan, told the Associated Press that officers patrolling the capital's historic district heard a loud bang at 4.30 a.m. and found the broken statue. It sounded like an explosion, he said. The statue was made of melted steel from British cannons and featured the Spanish explorer facing south with his hand on his hip and right finger pointing towards the first settlement he founded. The ruins still mark the spot of the island's first Spanish capital and is a U.S. National Historic Landmark. The statue also points in the direction of the nearby San Juan Bautista Cathedral that holds Ponce de Leon's remains and is a popular tourist spot.
Crews struggled to remove the heavy statue hours after the incident, and San Juan Mayor Miguel Romero promised in an interview with Telmundo Puerto Rico that it would be repaired. Two years ago, activists marched through the streets of Old San Juan as they joined the U.S. movement to eradicate symbols of oppression and demanded that Spain's legacy in Puerto Rico be erased, while some statues have been defaced with graffiti. Police said this is the first time such a statue was toppled. And finally, the St. Kitts Nevis Observer reports that a Florida man filed a lawsuit last Thursday against a sheriff and his deputies claiming he was illegally detained for no other reason than being born in Jamaica. Neville Brooks, a lawful permanent U.S. resident, was detained in Central Florida in August 2020. His lawsuit said that a federal immigration officer told multiple county employees that Brooks wasn't subject to any immigration detention requests, according to the suit against Marion County Sheriff Billy Woods and several deputies. Brooks wasn't released until the following day, and he was diagnosed with COVID-19 five days later, according to the lawsuit. The lawsuit accuses the sheriff's office of having a policy of detaining people merely because they were born outside the U.S. Brooks' constitutional rights were violated and state law against false imprisonment also was violated according to the lawsuit. Brooks, 59, was originally arrested on a charge of misdemeanor battery, which was later dismissed. The judge set bail for $100 at the man's first appearance amid concerns that Brooks could be exposed to COVID-19 in jail, the lawsuit said. Family members posted the bail, but deputies at the jail never released him, according to the suit. It said authorities told him he was being held for federal immigration agents, even though U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement never issued a detainer, administrative warrant, or any other request to hold Brooks. The lawsuit is seeking undisclosed financial damages for an order barring the sheriff's office from detaining people for immigration enforcement merely because they're born outside of the United States. This has been your Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup for Tuesday, January 25th. I'm Keisha Wallace, thanking you for choosing Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup as your source for Caribbean-centered news right here Monday through Friday. Be sure to spread the word to family, friends, and associates. For more Caribbean news stories and information, visit us online at pulseofthecaribbean.com and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, now Meta.